Do I have a mic today, guys, or is it up here already, or? mic today or am I going to use this one okay let's go ahead first Corinthians chapter 9 first Corinthians chapter 9 verse 22 let's start uh, I'll tell you what let's start verse 16 all right chapter 9 verse 16 and again we um, we began this uh, this message uh, two weeks ago and again, it was kind of in our Growing in the Christian Life series, and we're talking about by all means, save some. By all means, save some. And so let's go ahead and begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. The Bible says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe's unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. For them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. I just added my own version there. How about we an incorruptible? <laughs> I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beat of the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now again, we began last a uh, couple weeks ago actually, and we noted that the Apostle Paul had a tremendous desire to see people come to Christ. Matter of fact, that was his first and foremost passion in life. And as we noted, we're to have the same exact passion as the Apostle Paul. He was a believer. He was saved on the road to Damascus, uh, Damascus, and as a result of that, he ultimately went out and preached the gospel and won people to Christ and trained them up in the Lord Jesus, and churches began to spring up everywhere. Our desire ought to be like His, to see each and every person born again, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not a very difficult thing to grasp that concept, but it is extremely difficult at times to apply it to our lives. We are all very well aware that we ought to be out and about reaching others with the gospel. We know we ought to share it, but boy, doing it sometimes is a real challenge, isn't it? And yet that is the calling of every believer. 
It's not just the calling of a pastor or a staff member. It's not just the calling of even a Sunday school teacher or adult Bible class leader. It's not just the calling of a bus captain or maybe a worker in the church. No, it is a responsibility and duty of every single believer that names the name of Christ to reach every soul with the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, he said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says later in chapter 10 verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Again, a consuming passion, a passion that you and I also need to possess. Well, tonight we're going to continue in our study. Uh, two weeks ago, we began by saying that the main objective in every Christian's life should be the salvation of souls. We talked about Christ's example and Christ's expectation. We noted the difference between being evangelical versus being evangelistic. And then we began to speak about the issue of every soul we touch is to be regarded as a potential Christian. And when we dealt with that, we said that God includes all and that God intends all to hear. Well, tonight we're going to pick up now with our study, and we're going to begin with we are, we are to adapt, excuse me, we are to adopt every means available to secure the salvation of souls. We're to adopt every means available to secure the salvation of souls. And so with that said and done, let's go ahead and go to the throne of grace and we'll ask God's blessing on the message this evening. Father, we come to you, Lord, once again. It is our great privilege to gather here. And Lord, tonight we're asking you to meet with us in a very special way. Lord, we know the gospel of Jesus Christ is precious. Father, how could we ever doubt that, seeing that we in this room more than likely are saved and have experienced it firsthand? Now, Lord, if there's someone that hasn't in this room that has yet to come to Christ and experience the saving grace of the Lord Jesus, we pray that they would, but most of us, if not all, have in this room. Lord, it's very precious. Help us to be very willing to share it with others. Lord, encourage us tonight now. Train us, teach us. Father, move us. May we be different for having come tonight. Well, thank you for what you will accomplish in our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. We're to adopt every means available to secure the salvation of souls. I want you to think for a moment of the Savior's journey from heaven to earth. I mean, he comes down to earth, and from there he finds his way down a dusty trail, bearing a cross ultimately to carry it to a mount where he would be hung on a tree. The nails would be placed in his hands and his feet. It already endured Tremendous suffering, agony, pain, mocking. And yet there now he's hung in the sky between heaven and earth. Suffering, bleeding, dying for you and I. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. 
He left the portals of glory. He left the gold streets, so to speak. He left the angels waiting on him hand and foot to make his way to this old sinful, wicked world where he would ultimately hang on a cross and die for your sin and I and mine. Not only that, but we see him while he was on earth illustrating this reality. He went out of his way to reach out to a woman at a well. The Bible tells us in the book of John chapter 4 verse 3, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must, he says, and he must needs go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria. Why would you want to go through Samaria, Jesus? Why would you want to go over there to those half-breeds? We're talking about those who, again, were entering into marriage through the the Assyrian captivity. The Jews that had been taken entered into mixed marriages with the heathen. We're never supposed to do that. It was never God's intent that believers enter into relationships with unbelievers. It's not how it's supposed to be. That's not what God intends, but that's exactly how it transpired. These Jews were whisked away into Assyrian captivity, and many of them married Gentiles, Assyrian Gentiles. The offspring were the Samaritans. The Jewish people resented them. The Jewish people hated them. And now here's Jesus finding his way to that well. He must needs go to Samaria. Why in the world, Jesus, would you go to Samaria? You're supposed to be reaching out to the Jew. You're reaching out to your people. I'll tell you why, because Jesus Christ, like each and every one of us, adopted every means available to secure the salvation of souls. He was willing to go and be inconvenienced. He was willing to go and be misunderstood. He was willing to go and even be maligned if necessary to reach out to a woman who he already knew was desperate for him. The Bible says in John chapter 4 verse 35, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Thereupon, uh, winning her to himself, she goes back to her city and begins to share the news with all of her friends and all of those in the city. The disciples have now returned and they're saying, what in the world, Jesus, here's some food. He says, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I don't need that food. I've already had some food. And then I want you to look over that thing over there. Look at that. The fields are white already into harvest. I can only imagine that the the men and and the women of that city began to make their way out. And as they looked down over that that, uh, valley potentially there, all those dressed in white making their way up that hill in the heat of the day, Jesus is saying, see, the fields are already white into harvest. He's referring to souls that were desperate for Jesus Christ. Jesus was interested in people. He cared enough to come. He was inconvenienced on their behalf. He cared enough to cope with all the naysayers and others that might put him down for reaching out to that type of person. And he was inviting. He cared enough to call them unto himself. Can you imagine for even a moment that we as human beings would fail to call someone because of their race or their 
religious background or their upbringing or their economic status because we feel they're too far below us, too dirty, too nasty, and yet Jesus himself was willing to go? Can you imagine how it must nauseate the Savior to think that we would walk by a person and think that we're too good or that they're too bad for us to share the gospel with them. When he himself was willing to go anywhere to anyone. If we would get others in, then we must put ourselves out. If we would get others in, we must put ourselves out. A sobbing little girl stood by a small church from which she had been turned away because, well, they said it was too crowded. I can't go to Sunday school, she cried, as it just so happened the pastor was walking by. Seeing her shabby, unkept appearance, the pastor guessed the reason. He took that little girl by the hand and he made his way on inside that church building, that crowded, packed facility, and he found a place for her in the Sunday school. She sat down and took her place among the other children. That child was so touched, so encouraged, to hear that pastor say, one day, we'll have a bigger building and anybody and everybody can come to Sunday school. Later, little Hattie Mae Watt became very sick and she died. Just a couple of years later, some have said, the preacher was asked to do the funeral and the girl's mother told him that Hattie Waite had been saving money to help build a bigger church. And she gave him the worn and crumpled little purse in which Hattie had kept and saved 57 cents. The pastor had those 57 cents turned into 57 pennies. He told the congregation the story of little Hattie May and he sold the pennies for a return of about $250. In addition, 54 of the original 57 pennies were ultimately returned and, uh, to the preacher, and he later put them up on display. You need to understand that this was 1886. In 1886, 57 cents was no small savings, especially for a little girl from a very poor family. Some of the members of the church formed what they called the Hattie Mite Society, which was dedicated to making Hattie May's 57 cents grow as much as it possibly could and to ultimately buy the property for the primary department of the Sunday school. A house nearby was purchased with the $250 that Hattie May's 57 cents had produced, and the rest is history. See, a house nearby was purchased for sure. 
But you don't understand, you can't figure out, unless, unless you've read the story, that the first classes of Temple College, later Temple University, were held in that same house. It was later sold to allow Temple College to move from the growth of, uh, move and to grow uh, along, excuse me, to ultimately found the Good Samaritan Hospital, which was now, now called Temple University Hospital. In one of those rooms is a picture hanging on a wall of little Hattie Mae. And beside that picture is a picture of her pastor, Dr. Russell H. Conwell, who was the author of the book Acres of Diamonds. Hattie Mae's 57 cents changed the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But 57 cents was no small amount for a little poor girl in 1886. Little Hattie Mae decided that there was no cost too great, no sacrifice too big to ensure that others could hear the gospel. If we'd get others in, then we must put ourselves out. Number four, the most any servant of God can do is to save some. The most that any servant of God can do is to save some. Do we have any fishermen in the crowd tonight? Anybody go fishing? They go fishing? Okay, good, good. Can I ask uh, maybe some of you are bold enough to tell me, what's your biggest catch? I mean, I'm not talking about this, you know, because I know how that goes. I'm talking about numerically. How many fish did you catch in one day? The biggest catch you've ever had. You know, five fish, ten fish, twenty fish. What was it? Anybody, anybody got the guts to tell me what's it? Some of them are, yeah. Thirty fish. Wow, that's good. Yeah. Bluegill. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anybody else? This is just like fishermen's stories. Everybody's is getting bigger. I know how that goes. Yeah, in the back. 60? But 60, I don't care about the perch. I'm talking about 60. Can you imagine catching 60 goldfish would be amazing. That's, that's amazing, 60 perch. Anybody else? That's, that's good. Yeah, in the back. Well, we're wondering what you caught. <laughs> good answer. 61, right? <laughs> so we got, we got uh, potentially 61 out of, okay, maybe, no, but 60 and 30 and 36. and Man, that's really good. I mean, really, that, that's great. I, I think my biggest catch was maybe one. And, and, and when I felled it, I didn't want to touch any more after that. Yeah, some of you women know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I would hope some of the guys did, but they would never admit it if they did know. But anyway, you know what? When you think about that, that sounds like a lot of fish, but let's just be honest. You, you caught 30, you caught 36, you caught 60, you caught possibly more, 75, a group of people, and maybe, maybe there's more, hundreds and hundreds even. But when you really think about it, you didn't catch every fish, did you? 
I don't care how hard you tried, probably how long you stayed out there, you'd never catch all the fish. You'd only catch some. You know, and that's what God wants for you and I today. You know, if we're not careful, we do miss the, the we kind of misunderstand things. We read the Bible, we get the idea that we've got to win the world. Well, I understand that God says we're to go out and reach the world with the gospel. We're to make sure that everyone gets an opportunity to hear the truth. But really, it's not our responsibility to win everybody. There's no way that any one of us can win everybody. But certainly, every servant of God can, do, can, can, can lead someone to Christ. Just like a fisherman never catches all the fish and only catches some, sometimes none even. It's certainly a reflection of you and I as believers and our responsibility of catching souls. In Romans eleven fourteen, if by any means I provoked emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them, the Apostle Paul said. Might save some of them. Again, in Romans eleven fourteen, he said that we might, I might save some of them. He recognized he can't save all of them, that he's going to save some. And that's all that God expects of you. You know, don't get discouraged because you don't see the, I guess, the um, number of souls you'd like to see saved. You don't see the harvest that you'd like to have. But the question is, are you throwing out the hook? Are you throwing out the net? See, if you don't throw the net out, if you don't cast the line and put the hook in the water you'll never catch anything. And you know the devil, he'll do anything and everything he possibly can to keep you and I from casting the net. The devil would have you be disillusioned. You say, what do you mean disillusioned? He'd have you believe that the world's too far gone. He'd have you go about life thinking, well, man, this world's just gone way too far left. It's way downhill. It's too deep in the muck and the mire. There's just no way. It's, the world's just too far gone. He'd have you be disillusioned. Not only that, but he'd have you be disappointed. He'd have you disappointed and he'd have you say, no one cares about the truth and nobody will listen. You get discouraged. You get disappointed. See, once you get disappointed, you end up discouraged and you say to yourself, there's no use trying. It's a waste of my time. Let's just be honest. Probably every one of us knows somebody like that. It's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're not Christians. They've gotten discouraged. The devil has disillusioned them. Made them believe that the world's too far gone. He's disappointed them, causing them to think that nobody cares about the truth and nobody will listen. Ultimately, they're discouraged now, and they say, there's no use trying. It's a waste of my time. We probably all know someone like that. Used to pass out tracts, used to witness to people, used to go door knocking, used to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it that they're no longer Christians? Absolutely not. It has nothing to do with it. So they become discouraged. I want to tell you tonight that the devil wants you to get discouraged. He wants to convince you that there's no use in trying. He wants to tell you that you might as well just, you'd be better off to try to jump across the lake 
than win a soul because you have better chance of reaching the other side than you do reaching the soul of man. And that's just a lie. That's a lie. God's plan is that every single believer, you and I and every other that names the name of Christ, experiences the joy of saving at least some precious souls. You know, people say things like, well, I don't have the gift of gab, and I don't have the the gift of evangelism, and I don't have the ability that other people have. That's all right. I understand that. But you can save some. Now, again, if you never try, you never will, but you can if you try. And again, the gospel is for everyone. Jesus Christ left glory to come to this earth. He literally went out of his way to see that woman at the well. He made his way even into this world, and he, he, he discarded the, the, the accolade, and he discarded all the attention of heaven to come here and be rejected for you and I. The least we can do is try to win some. You don't have to win the world. But at least cast the hook. At least cast the net. Number five. And this is our last point. The success of the gospel is dependent upon the obedience of those who are entrusted with it. The success of the gospel is dependent upon the obedience of those who are entrusted with it. In Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, why don't you turn there? You probably know it. As we begin to say it, you probably go, oh, I know that. I didn't even need to turn. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 kind of goes real well with our missions theme. The Bible says, go ye therefore. And again, it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking before his ascension. He's given what is often referred to as the Great Commission. And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The reality is, is that this is the real purpose of the church to some degree. Now again, it goes a little bit deeper. We're given some insights in Ephesians chapter 4. We're to equip, exhort the saints. But why do we equip and why do we exhort? I get a little bit perturbed with people who tell me the church's purpose is to just simply teach and train the saints. To do what, may I ask? To reach souls. So you can't separate the purpose of the church into pieces. It becomes a whole. God intended that the church equip the saints. When you gather here tonight, I'm speaking to Christians tonight. You say, well, someone's lost here and needs the gospel. Why don't you give them the gospel? Because that's what you're supposed to do. Whoa, 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 whoa. That just flew over everybody's head. Most people's heads. See, I I don't need to preach the gospel at every service. 
in the sense, I mean, obviously the gospel comes up all the time, but the point being is it's not necessarily necessary for me to always emphasize the gospel first. No, the goal of the church is to equip the saints to go out and win people to Christ. To perfect them. It's not our job to feed people so they can sit and grow fat, so to speak, on spiritual things. It's so that they can go forth with energy and with vitality and with knowledge and understanding and honestly complete and fulfill the calling that God gave to each of us. And that's to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then the Bible goes on to say, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The most effective thing, the, the best thing that we could do as believers would be to grab hold of one person that we win to Christ and teach them to do what we do. But you know what we'd rather have in our churches? Discipleship programs. Because I don't really feel much like discipling. I'd rather someone else do that job. We need soul winning plan. We need a soul winning program. Because some people are better equipped to do that. I, that's not my deal. I'm not about winning people. You know, I'm not good at that. So I hope we have a soul winning program because we need to reach the world. And since I'm part of the whole, I'll take credit for some of the successes of that too. Hold on. Why don't we just all go grab one person? Why don't we all just win somebody? Why don't we all just cast the net? Why don't we all just, just go ahead and cast a hook and reel one in and then invest our life in that one person? And teach them to do what we do. Teach them to say and talk like we talk. Teach them to act like we act. Teach them to do what we do all the time. I mean, that's what discipleship's about. Discipleship's just about saying, here's what's important in my life. It ought to be important in yours. Because now you're a Christian too, like I am. You ought to love God's house. You ought to love God's man. You ought to love God's people. You ought to be in God's house. You ought to be in your place every time the doors are open. You need to do that with the one you win to Christ. You need to say, I've got a seat right here for you tonight. Oh, I can't wait to see you Wednesday night at church, Sunday night at church, Sunday morning at church. And then after they begin to grow in the things of the Lord, and, and obviously in our church they can be plugged into some other teaching tools and other areas of, of encouragement. But as you're, we're moving along that pathway, man, what would, what would it do? What, what would it do to our church if everybody honestly said, it's my responsibility to not only cast it, reel it in, but to sit by it, teach it, raise it, and help it along in the Christian life? Boy, that would transform our whole ministry. You'd have a bunch of little baby Christians running around that are fired up. Every once in a while, you'd hear a amen, and every once in a while, you'd hear a cuss word. And we'd all go, <laughs> God's good sending us these babies. We just need to be patient with them and train them. We need to love on them and show them grace. And they'll come on in in their short shorts and they'll run on in their halter tops maybe in the summer and we'll say, <laughs> oh, these baby Christians, we need to be patient with them and love them and teach them and help them. But boy, is it nice to hear the 
screams, the cries and of little babies. I don't know about you, but I love babies. Some people hate them. Honestly, some people just can't stand babies. I love babies. You know what? There's nothing more exciting than a baby Christian. Baby Christians are wonderful. Man, they make you realize there's hope. I want to encourage you to get your own baby. I mean, spiritual baby. Okay? All right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Make sure we clarify that one. We note the responsibility. We're all to go. I just want to encourage you. I mean, look, if you look at that passage, I mean, teach, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Well, that teaching is the gospel, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We get them in those baptismal waters. Then it says, teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you. There it is. Every one of us need to make that personal in our life. And find somebody that we can fulfill the great commission in. We can fulfill it in their life. And that's, that's encouraging. I want to encourage you to try to do your best to do that. <clears throat> the responsibility. The reality is. Here's the reality though. There's a real sense in which the gospel is failing today, isn't it? I mean, we're all aware of that. And, and we ask, well, why is that? Well, I think if I polled a number of you, you could give me some real good reasons. I believe that. But don't you think it's because so few Christians are really obeying the Great Commission? When it's all said and done, it's really not a problem with management. It's a problem with labor, isn't it? But let me tell you, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. In Romans 1.16, the apostle said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's really not that the plan doesn't work. It's that we don't work the plan. The, like I said, the problem's not with management, it's with labor. Tom Sexton, he, uh, he's now the pastor of Gulf Coast Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. He once worked for a man by the name of Lee Robertson in the Highland Park Baptist Church. While he was there uh, at that church, he was given an adult Bible class, a couples class, young couples class. He had begun to work very diligently and he was doing very well he was taking some classes, he was working full time, and he was building this class. He built it to over a hundred. One day, he was walking down the road, and a gentleman gave him an envelope, or said, told him, he said, listen, stop by the office, there's an envelope for you. What, what's that about? I don't, just, I don't know, just go by the office, I was told you got an envelope. He went to the office there at Highland Park Baptist Church. He saw the receptionist. He asked her, he said, listen, I'm, I'm, a, I, I, I'm Brother Sexton, and there's supposed to be an envelope here for me. She said, oh, yes, of course, sir. She got the envelope. She handed it to him. He took the envelope. He left the office, and as he exited the office, there, right there outside the office, he began to open up that envelope. And when he opened it up, he realized 
It was a check. What was that check for? He ran into J.R. Faulkner, his mentor, his guide. He said, Brother Faulkner, what's this about? What's this check about? He said, well, that's Dr. Robertson's way of letting you know that you're on the payroll now. The staff. What in the world would I be on the staff for? Well, how'd that happen? He said, well, see, you've built your class to over 100. Dr. Robertson figures he don't have time to take care of those 100 people. Somebody does. Somebody has to. So now you get to. He thought, man, that's wonderful. I've been doing that for free, going to school, working full time, and still doing it. This is great. It wasn't very long, probably two weeks after he had received that check, after he had been told that he's going to receive one every week. He was walking down the uh, campus there, and all of a sudden, a gentleman came up and grabbed his arm as they were walking. It was Dr. Lee Robertson. Dr. Lee Robertson had put Tom Sexton in charge of the Sunday schools. And as he walked with him, it was the, Tom Sexton says it was his real job description now he was being given. He walked with him and he said, Brother Tom, he said, I want to tell you if people aren't being saved, it's one of two reasons. It's for one of two reasons. And as he walked with him, he said, either the gospel's lost its power or the gospel's not being given. Brother Tom... Make sure everybody's given the gospel. And he just walked away. Dr. Tom Sexton began to establish classes for his teachers and workers, made sure that every single one of them knew how to lead children to Christ, demanded that in every, every Sunday school class the gospel was given. Souls were saved by the thousands. Because, see, Dr. Robertson knew what you and I ought to also embrace in our life. Understand and not be deceived. That the gospel is still powerful. And the only reason why people don't receive it is because it's not being given See, the success of the gospel is dependent upon the obedience of those who are entrusted with it. Winning souls is the main business of the believer. Now again, we can debate and argue and people can say, well, no, I think it's to be filled with the Spirit. I think it's to glorify God. Yes, I understand all that. But let me tell you something. There's nothing that glorifies God more than when we lift up His Son. And he said, if you lift me up, I will draw all men unto me. Well, let's do our best. Let's guarantee, let's make sure that the gospel is being given. Sunday school teachers, you get that gospel in. I don't care if you've got a 10-minute message. You get that gospel in. Adult Bible leaders, weave that gospel in there somewhere. Weave it in. It doesn't have to be the the only thing you teach. Don't misunderstand me. You know, John 3.16 is a wonderful verse. 
Gospel's the greatest message ever told. However, hold on. We've got to teach, train, and equip people as well. But weave it in there. Sunday school teachers with the kids down here in the bus ministry always give the gospel. Make it happen. Well, we want to get people saved. It's the main business of the believer. It ought to be the main business of the church house in the sense that everything we do is ultimately to equip, to prepare, to ready our membership to reach the world with the gospel and fulfill the Great Commission. Father, we come to you. We are grateful, Father, once again for the privilege that